Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine. Heine Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. Hi, I'm Mick Sullivan, host of The Past and the Curious. People are always saying to me, Mick, your show's so great, I love it. What can I do to make sure that you continue to do it until the end of time? You say, oh, there's so many things. You know, we have a Patreon account. You can go to Patreon, you can sponsor us. Uh, from a dollar a month on up. And if you give $5 or more, I'll shout your name at the end of the episode. I'm going to do it. Stay tuned for this episode. I've got three names to shout. You can find us on social media and share us with people. You think they might like us? Please let them know. Word of mouth is so important, and it really, really, really helps us. Um, Another thing you can do is leave us a great review on iTunes. Give us five stars. Tell everybody why you like the show so much. It would be wonderful. And that really helps our visibility, helps people find us, which is what we want. We want to reach more people. And last but not least, you could just send us a nice note. Send us an email. Send us a message on Facebook, something. Let us know you're listening. Let us know you enjoy it. A nice word goes a long way in this day and age. So thank you all for listening. Enjoy the show. Well, hello again. Welcome to The Past and the Curious. We're really excited. This is our ninth episode, uh, in addition to a couple special episodes that we've done. So really, it's like our 11th or 12th, but we're going to call it our ninth one. And it's all about people on the move. Some great stories from the past. First thing you're going to hear is Victoria Rival. Uh, and she's going to tell you the story of Nellie Bly. Nellie's got a lot of great stories, but this is the one about her journey around the world. Um, after that, we'll do a little quiz time. And then our friend up in New York, Jason Lawrence, is going to tell you the story of Henry Brown, also known as Henry Box Brown. It's a really, really fascinating story. And last but not least, I'm really excited. My old friend Chris Rodehofer, an amazing musician, is going to be here and he's going to sing I've Been All Around This World an old folk song without further ado here's Victoria Rival. Elizabeth Cochran could barely contain her excitement swimming around in her head was surely the best idea she'd ever cooked up it was certain to get people's attention probably more so than anything else she'd done before In 1873, a French author named Jules Verne wrote a book called Around the World in 80 Days. The story revolves around a man named Phileas Fogg, who makes a bet that he can travel around the globe in, as the title clearly implies, 80 days. Spoiler alert, though it is a close call, Mr. Fogg circumnavigates the globe and wins the bet, all the while riding boats, horses, and trains. 
He never actually uses a balloon, a common misconception among people who've not read the book. Now, this young lady with the great idea was a newspaper journalist famous for undercover investigations, but she was better known by her pseudonym, her nom de plume, her pen name, Nellie Bly. And Nellie decided that she was going to make the same 80-day journey in real life as the fictitious character Phileas Fogg had done in the book. So she went to her boss at the New York World, a well-known newspaper at the time, and told him what she wanted to do. As she sped across the globe, she'd write regular dispatches for the paper, and they could print updates and promote the amazing feat, so readers would get excited and follow the bombastic, never-before-attempted journey. Great idea, he said, but instead of you, I'm going to find a man to make the journey and write the story. Do what? That's absurd. It was my idea, and I should do it. Then her boss said something ridiculous about how a woman traveling would need someone to protect her. Plus, he said she'd pack too much stuff. A woman couldn't travel across the globe unprotected and carrying six or seven suitcases, which is what he assumed she need. To Nellie Bly, this sounded like a load of hogwash. So she calmly said something along the lines of, Very well, you go ahead and use my idea and find a man to do it for you in your newspaper. I will go to another newspaper and make the journey anyway, and I'll do it faster than any man you hire. And with that, her boss gave in. What was there to do but send Nellie Bly? Thanks to America's new transcontinental railroad, a similar railway across Lower Asia, and the freshly dug Suez Canal near Egypt, it was now truly possible to make the journey with relative ease. And Nellie, now beaming with confidence, calculated that she could do it in 75 days, not the 80 it required old Phileas in the book. Oh, and you would believe it? She carried just one single bag, probably smaller than your school backpack. How's that for traveling light? From Jersey City, she sailed to England, where she met the author who inspired her trip. Jules Verne was, quite understandably, very excited to see his book become reality. Then she headed by train south across Europe towards Egypt and the Suez Canal, where she took a steamer to the Indian Ocean. She wrote constant updates of the adventure, people she saw, and the wonders she encountered. Many of these were sent back to America via the amazing undersea telegraph cable which now stretched across the Atlantic Ocean. American readers soaked it up with great joy and excitement. But they weren't just reading for Nellie's updates, as it would turn out. By the time she got to Hong Kong, Nellie got some news. Another newspaper, Cosmopolitan, did not wish to be outdone, nor lose readership as everyone followed Nellie's travel. It turns out they had hired another woman, Elizabeth Bisland, to race around the globe trying to beat Nellie. Unbeknownst to Nellie, and with only six hours to prepare for her journey, this other woman left the same day Nellie had. Bislin, though, was heading in the exact opposite direction, trying to make Nellie's journey in reverse. And when Nellie heard about the competition in Hong Kong, she also heard that this Elizabeth lady from Cosmopolitan had already been there three days before Nellie and was heading along the trail Nellie had just tread. She was on pace to beat Nellie. Now, Nellie wasn't just racing the 80 days of the book, or even the 75 days she predicted, but she was racing another woman, and the world was watching. Not one to get caught up in the hoopla, Nellie tried to not worry too much about Miss Bislin and committed to her 75-day goal and continued her job, writing about the people and places she saw so people back in America could live through her eyes. But that doesn't mean the newspapers and their readers weren't working themselves into a frenzy over the two-woman race. 
When Nellie sailed across the wide Pacific Ocean from Asia to San Francisco, she was not able to send updates, so for nearly two weeks, her readers and followers had no idea where she was in the race. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Bislin, working across Europe, where a very fast steamship was waiting at port to whisk her off to America. Once she was on board, it would only be a matter of days before she landed in New York and won the race. But then Nellie's boat finally appeared near the foggy California coast, and she was met by cheering crowds of fans as it came to port in San Francisco. Even if Nellie wasn't too worried about losing the race with Bisland, her bosses at the New York World were. So they had a single-passenger train car waiting for her to whisk her across the entire United States at breakneck speed. Nellie insisted on making a few stops, and at each one was met by cheering crowds who wanted to see the woman who was on pace to travel around the globe faster than anyone else had ever done. She was 25 years old, probably the most famous woman in America, and was now constantly invited to dinners and parties. She was on the cover of newspapers. She was even encouraged to run for governor of Kansas. We'll be sure to vote you in, Nellie, they said. People were eager to see how the race would end. In an effort to garner even more attention, the newspaper held a nationwide contest for people to guess the exact amount of time, days, hours, minutes, and even seconds it would take Nellie to return to her starting point in Jersey City. For all most people knew, it would be a photo finish for the race between Bisland and Bly. But back in Europe, Bisland ran into trouble. A few days from the coast, someone informed her that the steamship she was to meet could no longer wait and had already set sail for America without her, this would doom her chances for winning. The problem is that it wasn't true. Elizabeth Bislin hadn't missed her ship yet. No one knows for sure, but there is speculation that someone working for Bly's paper, New York World, may have given her bad information. If it was a lie or an honest mistake, it prevented her from making the race close, because she instead boarded a much slower ship, making it four days behind Nellie Bly. Meanwhile, Nellie's train approached the east coast of the United States with much excitement, and on January 25th, just before 4 o'clock in the afternoon, she stepped off the train car in Jersey City. Safe and sound, she carried her one small bag, and wearing a huge smile, Nellie had done what many people doubted she or anyone could do, and with time to spare. Would you care to make a guess, like the millions of Americans in 1889 and 1890 did, as to how long Nellie's epic journey took? In the end, she beat Jules Verne's 80 days and her own goal of 75 days. The official time for her trip around the globe was a blistering 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds. The winning guess came from a young man named Frank Stevens. Frank had never left the United States before, and his prize was a free trip to Europe. Not wanting to go alone, he said he'd pay for his wife's travel himself so they could enjoy the sights and culture together. And they did so at a much slower pace than Nellie Bly. Oh, hey, I wonder what time it is. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It is quiz time. After her career in reporting, Nellie Bly was the head of the Ironclad Manufacturing Company, where she invented a steel container for holding what 
liquid. Though some people attribute the 55-gallon oil drum to Nellie Bly, it's actually not very likely. Without a doubt, though, Elizabeth Cochran, that was her real name, did receive a U.S. patent for a very familiar metal milk bottle. Okay, question number two. As you learned, Nellie Bly was a pen name, or a fake name someone uses when writing. Elizabeth Cochran took the name from the song lyrics of a popular song from which famous American composer? Nellie Bly has a voice like a turtle dove. I hear it in the meadow and I hear it in the grove. Nellie Bly has a heart as warm as a cup of tea and bigger than the sweet potatoes down in Tennessee. These are the lines from a song written in 1849 by Stephen Foster. By far the most popular songwriter of his day, Foster also wrote, Oh Susanna, Camp Town Races, Hard Times Come Again No More, the state song of my state, my old Kentucky home, and many more hits that are still known today over 150 years later. Okay, your third and final question. Nellie traveled through the Suez Canal in 1889, and that canal was a huge undertaking of human ingenuity and it changed the world by connecting the Mediterranean and the Red Seas. This meant ships could sail from Europe and the Middle East to Asia without sailing all the way around the enormous continent of Africa. This saved enormous amounts of time and money. But do you know which famous statue was originally intended to be here at the Suez Canal? rather than at its current location. To commemorate the importance of the Suez Canal, Auguste Bartholdi suggested adorning it with a giant statue of a robed woman holding a torch. Does that sound familiar? He planned to call it Egypt, bringing the light to Asia. Plans fell through and the statue was renamed Liberty Enlightening the World and she eventually found her home in the waters near New York City. And today, we typically call her the Statue of Liberty. And here's Jason Lawrence with the second story for the episode. Fragile, this side up, this side of the wooden box read. There was a big red arrow pointing, but it wasn't pointing upward as the words instructed. Careless handling by someone, either on the steamboat or the train car that carried the parcel, had left the crate on its side. Now as it bounced along in the bed of a horse-drawn wagon, the contents inside were surely no longer upright. But the contents of the box were not goods. Inside there was no food, no furniture, no clothing. Inside was a man, and this man was uncomfortably doubled over with his knees near his head, arms wrapped around his legs. Surrounding him was rough packing fabric, which barely softened the hard wooden sides of the box. In his hands, he clutched a few bits of bread and a bladder of water. Occasionally, he drank a sip to stay hydrated, but he constantly reminded himself to save enough water to get him through his trip. It was hard to breathe. To stay cool, he'd fan himself with his hat when he could, 
but at times the box would be in such an orientation that he might be face down with his arms pinned by his body and his face pressed hard against the fabric and the floor. Most of the time he had to be perfectly silent because he did not wish to be discovered as people milled about near his wooden box. He had an idea of how long the trip would be, but there was no way to be certain. It became difficult for him to remember exactly how long he'd been cramped in the wooden crate already. It was disorienting to be rolled into a ball in complete darkness and roughly moved by freight handlers from the railroads, packet ships, and wagons. But Henry put himself in this predicament, and it meant the world to him. When he was born in Louisa County, Virginia, Henry Brown was a slave, just as his parents were and his grandparents had been before that. At the plantation on which he lived, the enslaved were given clothes, decent shoes, and fed reasonably square meals. He also had the relative fortune of living near his parents and siblings. This was not common for most enslaved people. As a young man, Henry was allowed to travel to several other plantations, and at these he noticed not all enslaved people lived under those circumstances. He was horrified to witness people being fed little, abused, working all hours, even into the night with no rest, and wearing little more than rough burlap potato sacks. He was devastated by the suffering and weariness the enslaved wore on their faces. What he saw and experienced would only grow worse with age. When he was 15, he was separated from his family and sent to Richmond to work in a tobacco factory. Tobacco was one of Virginia's largest cash crops, and the work involved was hard. It wasn't the difficulty of the work that bothered Henry, though. It was the monotony. He hated doing the same thing over and over and over. Inside his head was a mind bursting with creativity, potential, and ability. If his life continued in this manner, none of that magic would ever be shared with anyone. Before long, he became involved in a church where he would regularly sing, and he eventually got married and started a family. These things brought him some happiness. Henry's wife was enslaved, like Henry, but she belonged to another plantation owner. As was very common and heartbreaking, she and their children were sold to another plantation and forced to leave. Henry was left alone with his consuming grief. Soon he began to plan with free people of his congregation. He had heard of slaves who had escaped to freedom in the North. In his mind, Henry resolved to join them and make it out of Virginia to the free states with the help of some people from his church. His plan was bold. While most fugitive slaves would run under the cover of darkness and hide as they made their way north, Henry planned to hide in plain sight and travel through the most crowded of areas. Henry Brown would be packed into a box and shipped from Richmond, Virginia through Washington, D.C. to the free city of Philadelphia. Once there, awaiting abolitionists, which was the name for people working to end slavery, would receive the shipment and free him from the wooden container. It was a dangerous idea. If discovered, Henry would be punished severely. Even if not discovered, he could still be injured, or worse, from the difficult trip in the unsafe box. As you can imagine, being shipped was not a pleasant experience, but the promise of freedom kept Henry focused on survival. When he arrived on March 24, 1849, at the office of a Philadelphia abolitionist, the men waiting here to receive him were incredibly nervous. 
You see, they really doubted they'd actually find Henry alive inside when they pried the lid off of the crate. As it was, 27 hours after he left Richmond, the lid came off. Henry blinked as his eyes adjusted to the daylight, and slowly he stood up to stretch his legs. Looking around the room, he finally nodded and spoke with confidence. How do you do, gentlemen? There was a song he had always loved called I Waited Patiently for the Lord, and in celebration Henry sang that hymn in the presence of these men who helped him find freedom. Before long, his story was incredibly well known. The daring, creative, and bold attempt had worked, and the many people who wished to end slavery thought his story might help convince others. Henry told his story in any way he could think to. He toured the North as a speaker, telling the tale of the harrowing things he saw. He wrote an autobiography, which he sold after his speaking engagements. It became obvious that he had a natural ability on stage and a flair for the dramatic. Then a new idea struck him. He collaborated with some artists to create a moving panorama. These artists, Henry found, helped create large paintings of the realities of slavery and the lives that slaves led across the South. The paintings were on huge rolls of canvas, which would be stretched across the stage from large poles with cranks on each side. Henry faced the audience, telling them of the stories of slave life while the painted canvas rolls were displayed behind him. As the canvas was unrolled from one pole to the other, the scenes changed behind him, clearly illustrating the stories that Henry was describing. The performance and artwork was called Mirror of Slavery, and together you might consider it an early form of documentary films. The Mirror of Slavery was in high demand, and he continued to tour it throughout the North. His high profile created a problem, though. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 meant that even though he was in the free states of the North, he could still be captured and returned to slavery in the South. He was a fugitive. Under this law, he had technically stolen himself from his master. This would probably come with severe punishment, in addition to a return to enslavement. So he left America and took his moving panorama to England, settling first in Liverpool. His moving panorama helped him earn a living for a while. He'd take the stage with the actual box that he shipped himself in, and he'd always sing that same hymn for each new audience. The stories and scenes from his performance did much to convince people of the evils of slavery. After a while, though, he desired a life change. It is true, he was a talented man and very good on the stage. He also was quite creative. So Henry developed a new stage persona, before long, he began to tour a magic and hypnotism show, billing himself as the king of all mesmerizers. For many years, he made a good living performing on stage in England using hypnosis and ledger domain, or sleight of hand, to entertain audiences as the African Prince. About a decade or so after the Civil War, Henry Box Brown returned to America. Slavery was illegal by this time, and he was no longer in danger of being forced to return to his former master. Confident in his constantly developing stage show abilities, he continued his career as a magician, touring the United States and Canada to great acclaim. 
It's amazing to think that the same boy whose heart broke at the sight of underclothed and ill-nourished fellow slaves, the same teen who detested the monotony of the forced labor in the tobacco factory, the same man who cramped himself into a shipping crate and mailed himself to freedom, that man spent the later years of his life using his creativity and spark to entertain audiences with magic. He made a living doing what he wanted to do. If you'd like to learn more about moving panoramas, listen to episode 2 of The Past and the Curious for a story about John Banvard's amazing moving panorama. And if you'd like to hear other stories of ledger domain, magic, and learn the origin of the word mesmerize, listen to episode 8. And now I'd like to welcome my good friend, the great Chris Rodhoffer. He's singing and playing guitar along with me. You can hear Chris and Will Oldham, or Bonnie Prince Billy's band. Uh, they just have a new record out. Mm. Working on the new railroad Mud up to my knees Working on the new railroad With mud up to my knees Working for Big John Henry And he's so hard to please I've been all around this world well, Bring me my supper, boys I'll eat it done or all Bring me my supper, boys I'll eat it done or all I haven't had a square meal Since I left Arkansas I've been all around this world Okay, 
Before we go, we want to thank our Patreon sponsors. We have three new people who have pledged at the $5 or more level, which means I need to scream a thank you in their direction. So uh, if you want me to scream your name, you know what to do. Go to Patreon. First up, I would like to thank Jerry. Yeah, Jerry, thank you. Second, oh, Suki, thank you so much. Suki! And last but not least, Denise. Thanks, Mom. Thank you all for your generosity. We appreciate everything. Keep listening. Remember what I said about iTunes? Leave us a review. All of that stuff. Tell somebody you like us. Listen to our friends in the Kid Listen Network. And go be nice to somebody. I'm Mick Sullivan for The Past and the Curious. Thank you very much.